Well, good morning and uh, welcome on this uh, finally winter weekend that we have. Special welcome to those joining us, Crossroads Highland Park and the 01. About 40 years ago, uh, a study was uh, initially conducted at Stanford University that has subsequently become famous and it's known simply as the Marshmallow Test. And it was uh, set up to gauge the predictability of impulse control. So they brought these young kids in, uh, four and five years old, and they set them on a chair in front of a table, and on the table they placed a large marshmallow. And they said, you can eat this marshmallow right now if you want to, but I'm going to leave the room, and when I come back, if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you another marshmallow, right? So one marshmallow now, two marshmallows if you wait. They uh, stepped out of the room, ran uh, projectors to film what happened, and this is what they saw. Smells yummy. It smells really So as it turned out, most of the kids ate the marshmallow. Some immediately after the door was closed. Others sort of teased themselves for a long time before they finally ate the marshmallow. But some did not. And now they they have tracked with these kids over the last 40 years. And in virtually every measurement, right... SAT scores, ability to resist peer pressure, uh, substance abuse challenges, ability to manage stress, performance on the job in virtually every area. The kids who were able to not eat the marshmallow have outscored those who did. Right? So as it turns out, um, what they were measuring, impulse control, comes very close to the um, parable that Jesus tells today. So last week, if you were here, we looked at the parable of the shrewd manager. It was a very shocking, sort of surprising, what's this doing in the New Testament kind of a study where Jesus compliments, commends a dishonest, embezzling trust fund manager because he says at least he was taking advantage of what he had right now to prepare for a better future. It's shocking that it's in there, but Jesus said, you know, I wish my followers were were leveraging what they have today in light of the fact that we're going to live forever. So this theme continues now as we move into the next parable. It's the parable of Lazarus and the rich ruler. If you want to follow along with me, it's in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading with verse 19. Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So purple was the color that people who had money uh, wore. The purple dye was hard to get. It came from finding all these little snails and crushing them and that you would get the dye then to to color the, the fabric. And so it's generally only royalty or very wealthy people who had the ability to wear purple. So they're advertising their money, sort of a, you know, 
got a Gucci handbag or Hermes tie, whatever. There's an advertisement here about wealth. So there's a rich man. He's got a lot of, of money. He lives in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So uh, this guy who has nothing is set right outside the gate of the rich man's house. So obviously the rich man knows this guy, he sees him. He doesn't really see him, but he sees him. He's got to step over him. And uh, this guy doesn't, doesn't have anything. A lot of the commentaries uh, talked about this idea that at this time, because there weren't, weren't napkins, many people would make a special loaf of bread. And the bread was, after you washed your hands, you used the bread to sort of dry your hands and clean your hands. And then you just threw that bread away. So the suggestion is, this is what this guy was eating, was the bread that was being thrown away. So we have, uh, we have a contrast here, right, between two men. Rich and poor, living in luxury, uh, abject poverty, lots to eat nothing to eat. So we've got, we've got a contrast going on between these two. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, uh, Abraham's side is the term that is used, one of the terms that's used, paradise is also used, to refer to the place that we go uh, if we die in faith. Okay? So, Heaven and hell technically refer to places that no one is at right now other than God, but that will become the eternal resting place of people after the physical resurrection that happens at the end of the age. Okay? So if I die today, my body goes in the ground, my soul or my spirit goes uh, to be with God. Paul writes about this in Philippians 3. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. He's longing to depart and to be with Christ. There's no soul sleep. There's no downtime between, uh, between life, death, and new life. Okay? But there is a day coming, right, at the end of the age where we get new bodies, physically restored bodies, right? The tomb was empty. Jesus' physical body rose from the dead. And when he comes back to life, he has a glorified physical body. He eats food. He has them touch him. He goes out of his way to say, right, there is a physical resurrection. That's what we affirm when we say the Apostles' Creed. We say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Okay, we're not talking about Jesus. We're talking about that there is a physical resurrection. Heaven is not an ethereal, mystical, magical, spiritual, never-never land. It's here, it's there, it's nowhere. No, heaven's a real place. More real than the place we're at right now. That happens after the physical resurrection. That happens at the end. Between now and then, theologians talk about the intermediate state. And this isn't, this isn't purgatory. There's, there's a good intermediate state called paradise or Abraham's side. There's a bad intermediate state cut off from God. It's referred to as Hades. Okay? Now, most people don't know this, and the terms heaven and hell get used loosely most of the time to refer both to heaven is referred to both as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom or paradise and heaven, that just 
heaven gets used generically for that, and hell gets used generically for, for Hades and for hell. But right here, what, what Jesus says is, the time came when the beggar died, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So the, the poor guy doesn't get a burial, uh, but the rich guy doesn't get angels taking him uh, to Abraham's side. So the rich man also died, was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and uh, saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So a couple things to note here. First of all, uh, it's worth noting that uh, only one of these guys has a name. Right? Lazarus has a name. The rich guy is just called the rich guy. Now, in tradition... Uh, Jewish tradition. So if you read the Jewish commentaries, they will, uh, they will supplement the name Dives for the rich man. And Dives is a Latin term, and it basically means uh, money bags. Sort of a derogatory term for a rich person. So tradition has a name for this guy. But Jesus doesn't use a name for this. And Tim Keller, in his uh, treatment of this passage, suggests uh, that this is very significant, and it's because this guy is sort of lost at this point. So Keller and others will argue it's significant that, that he, <clears throat> he's not named, because names are very important in biblical times. Uh, they mean something generally. When God gives us his name, that's a big deal. When he, when he gives Moses his, his covenant name, uh, the name Lazarus means God helps me. Okay, which is um, ironic through his life. There's the guy sleeping on the sidewalk with the dogs licking his sores. He's got nothing to eat. Oh, yeah, who's that? That's God helps him. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't seem like God's helping him, but it's just going to, again, argue we have to look at all of this, not in light of this short life, but in light of forever, right? So eternity changes everything. God is going to help this guy. It doesn't seem that way for now. But you've got a guy called God helps him. And, and so the fact that he's named in a parable is also significant because there are no other names in any other parables. It's always a story Jesus makes up where the people are just described. It's the good Samaritan. It's the father. It's the prodigal son. It's, you know, a farmer. It's all. Nobody gets a name in a parable except this guy. So we've got the contrast, rich, poor, you know, luxury, starving, you know, gated community, nowhere place to live. This guy's got a name. This guy doesn't. And Keller says it's because uh, a name reflects an identity. And this guy has effectively lost who he is. Now, there's nothing wrong with having an identity that says, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a business guy, or I'm a, I'm a mother, or I'm an entrepreneur, or I'm an athlete, or I'm an artist, or I'm whatever. Lots of different identities. That's fine. But our ultimate identity needs to be fa- defined by our relationship with God. If that's not what is central about us, then ultimately we lose ourselves. We go nameless. So this guy is effectively nameless. And uh, he's, he's in torment. And he looks up and he sees Abraham far away with Lazarus 
by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, which is interesting because the fact that he refers to him as Father Abraham suggests some understanding of the covenant relationship between God and his people, and he's sort of claiming to be a child of God, but it's not turning out that way. So he calls, uh, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, in the past when I have read this, uh, I've always been struck by the, the sheer horror of what is being described as hell. You know, this guy, just he's, he's not asking for a glass of water. He's asking just for a, just, just have Lazarus come uh, and, and touch my tongue with just a drop of water. That would make things better for me. So I'm, I'm in the past, I've always sort of been uh, amazed by uh, just the horrific description of what we got here. More recently, I'm, I'm, I'm more shocked by something else. But before I tell you what I'm shocked by, let me just pause long enough to acknowledge <laughs> that I know I am freaking some of you out here because I'm talking about hell. Oh my goodness, you're thinking, this is why I don't go to church. This is why I've stayed away all these years. I can't, I mean, we can use the word hell if we're using it in just sort of a generic sense. Uh, it's cold as hell outside. Uh, he's a hell of a guy. Hell yes, hell no. You can use the word hell that way. But if you actually suggest that there is a hell or that someone is in danger of going to hell, then everybody shuts down because that's just not the way it's supposed to. Educated, thoughtful people don't talk about that today. So uh, I know that some of you are here and you're, you're freaking out. Oh my goodness, who is this idiot? And I don't know where he is going with this, but this is not me. Okay, so let me just say a few things. Um, let me talk you off the ledge for just a second. First of all, I get it. I hate this topic. Uh, I can't really comprehend it. I can't wrap my arms around it. So I get how off-putting it is. But it's fairly prominent. And the only person who talks about it is Jesus. Uh, all the horrific statements, you know, bottomless pit, utter darkness, lake of fire, all those things, gnashing of teeth, that's Jesus. It's not Paul, it's not the Old Testament. Not that that would matter, but, um, but some people are always wanting to say, well, that's the Old Testament, or that's, uh, you know, that's somebody else. No, this is Jesus uh, who talks uh, about hell, and he does so fairly often. So, um, for what it's worth... This isn't a great place. This is not a good passage for us to go to think about hell or to learn about heaven and hell. It's a parable. It's a story. Jesus makes up a bunch of facts in order to communicate a point. So with parables, you have to climb into the story, look around. Jesus is trying to smuggle truth under our radar so that we'll suddenly understand and see things more clearly, see ourselves more clearly. But you can't push on the details of a parable. They're not designed that way. So this is not a good place to go. But, as I said, <laughs> tragically, there are other places to go. Uh, now, let me say, uh, slight good news here. Uh, I don't think the descriptions we get from Jesus about hell are to be taken literally. I don't believe that there's a lake of fire. Okay? I just, I, it, it doesn't make sense to me. But uh, whenever a writer or a speaker is using hyperbole, 
which is what I believe Jesus is doing. He's using it because a, a more uh, literal description of events is not powerful enough to communicate the point. And so the, the writer will use metaphors and analogies and big words and stories because they think, I, I can't get there any other way. So clearly what Jesus is talking about here is horrific. Now on top of that, um, what has helped me make sense of hell is that the caricature of hell is so clearly wrong, right? That God is sending people to hell, condemning people to hell, throwing them in hell, slamming the door closed, right? Laughing. Any, any of that <laughs> completely misses the spirit of the New Testament, where what we find is a loving father who is pleading, who is loving, who is going out of his way to say, not that way, but this way, right? Who's making all provisions so people get to go this way. And, uh, and the, the way it has helped me to begin to understand it, I think, I, think, I think eternity in any way, heaven or hell, eternity is one of those things that's just a little bit beyond our comprehension. It becomes a little bit mysterious. But one of the things that has helped me is the way a, a, a number of theologians through the years have, have talked about hell. And they've talked about it as the absence of God and what God has created. Right? So the, the metaphors that we get for hell, it's a bottomless pit. Right? It's utter darkness. God is light, it's utter darkness. And, and the, the lake of fire motif says, it's not, it, this, these are not literal flames. This is just our own internal desires going unmet. Right, so uh, when, when Keller has written about this, he's, he's used addictions as a way to help people understand. So addictions are, are anything, you know, put in drugs or, or uh, uh, alcohol or pornography or gambling, whatever the addiction is, right? What we know about an addiction is that what worked yesterday isn't enough today. Right, so it's got this, it's not a, it's not a steady state. I, t- I was talking with a friend this week who 37 years ago uh, hurt his back. He's been in constant pain for 37 years. And uh, I was asking him how that was going because it's always something he's got to manage. He just had had a couple surgeries trying to, to deal with this. And uh, he said, uh, he says, you know, I haven't told many people this. But he says, I, I, am on a, uh, I am on a morphine uh, program. And he says, I have been for 30 years. He goes, most people can't manage morphine. Uh, they can't manage opiates. They get addicted. He goes, I'm on a steady state. He says, no, nah, I got to, you know, because it's very hard to maintain that. He goes, but that's the only thing that's been able to knock the pain down. Most people are not on a steady state. They're addicted, which means it takes more and more to give the same level. So ultimately, eventually, because an addiction like sin is just broken good, it can't deliver on its promises, it takes everything we've got and it gives nothing back. (laughs) That's where addictions lead. It takes everything, it gives us nothing. So uh, imagine, Keller says, that this is, this is a little bit of what hell is like. It's, it's been a lie, and it's taken everything, and it's giving nothing back. And we're just left with our own unquenched desires, right? That's the flames of hell. 
C.S. Lewis is one of the guys who argues this way. And in his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, he says this. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What exactly are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and, at all costs, give them a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? Well, he's done that on Calvary. Are you asking for God to forgive them? The problem is they will not accept forgiveness. Are you asking God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. He then adds this uh, sort of famous line. The damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. You get more of this thinking in uh, The Great Divorce. Uh, Lewis's story uh, could, I suppose, be called a long parable. The story, I, I talked about it a couple months ago with There's a group of people in hell. And hell is this big, dark, massive expanse where everybody lives far away from everybody else because they get what they want. And what they want, they can't get along with anybody. So everybody just keeps moving out further and further and further. But there's a group of people that are allowed to take a bus. This is the great divorce. They get in a bus and they go to heaven. right? And heaven is this wonderful mix of of a city with a country. And there's all kinds of activity and light and people. But the people from hell don't like heaven. Right? They don't like it at all. First of all, they're wispy. They, they, they've been reduced to virtually nothing. They can't bend the blades of grass, right? So they hate heaven because they can't walk on the grass and pokes the bottom of their feet. That's the first thing. That's the first thing that starts to go wrong for them. But then they realize, and you read in these stories, that, that they're being invited. They're being given this second chance. Again, this is just a story. They're being invited up into heaven and they don't like heaven because they would have to admit that they were wrong and they would have to get along with other people and they would have to do all these things and they they don't want it. They want to be left alone. And so Lewis is among those that argues, this is what hell is. God just says, fine, okay, I'm out. I'm checking out. You want to be left alone? I'll leave you alone. Now, there are some challenges with this theory, but it has helped me understand a little bit more. And it actually sort of makes sense as we read this parable. Let me keep reading. So, uh, he calls, Father Abraham, have pity on me, send Lazarus uh, to, to dip his tongue, or to dip his finger in water and place it on my thong. I'm tongue i'm in agony in the fire but abraham replied son remember that in your lifetime you received good things while lazarus received bad things but now he is comforted uh here and you are in agony and besides all this between us and you there is a great chasm that is not that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to there cannot and nor can anyone cross over from uh there to us so note uh, a couple things here first of all uh, there isn't the implication here from Jesus is there isn't a second chance, right? There isn't, that isn't the way it works. Uh, there are ultimately four big ideas about what happens when we die. Idea one is naturalism. We're done, right? We're just a, we're just a biomechanical uh, machine. We're a naked ape. We're, we're whatever. Uh, carbon-based bipeds, that's it. There is no soul. When we die, show's over. Second idea is reincarnation 
comes out of the East, some of the Eastern religions, and says that we just we keep being reborn. Our soul goes into another life form, and we just progressively keep living and keep being reborn uh, until we have worked off all our sort of cosmic karmic debt. And when all of that has been paid, then we get to meld into the grand cosmic unity consciousness fireball uh, in, in eternity. The third view is called universalism, and that's that everybody gets to go to heaven or everybody gets to advance. It's sort of a, it, there's, there's a lot of this in vogue right now. The idea is that all religions are the same and everybody, except Hitler, he tends to always get left off. Everybody but Hitler is going gonna, is gonna to advance, okay? The fourth view, the, the Christian view says there actually is a heaven, there is a hell. Uh, Hebrews 9, it's appointed a person to die once, after that to face judgment, and then you go to an ever after in one of those two places. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about this out in, uh, in, in culture. This book is pretty clear about how it works out. Uh, there is a heaven, there is a hell. Jesus, who's God from all time, who knows what's going on, this is what he is teaching. So, so we notice that there isn't a second chance. But notice also, and this is what surprised me when I read through this uh, more recently. What surprises me is the rich man. <laughs> because right, he's living in denial. He doesn't ask to be forgiven. He doesn't ask to be able to go to heaven. He doesn't ask. He doesn't repent. He doesn't doesn't do the things that you would expect he would do. What he asks Abraham to do is, hey, send Lazarus, that guy that used to lay uh, outside the gate, the guy that I had to keep stepping over, send him down here to take care of me. Right? I mean, it's just like, he's just... He's so wrapped up and consumed in his own small little understanding of things, he, he just cannot even begin to grasp what's going on and what he ought to like, what he really should want. So he says, send Lazarus down. You know, I need some help down here. Hard to get good help uh, down here. So, um, so send Lazarus, and, and Abraham says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. So then he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let, let him warn them so that they will also uh, not come to this place of torment. So uh, a couple things here. One, very subtly and slyly, he makes the case that he's not to blame for what's happened. Right? Well, you've got you to gotta send somebody right, to, to tell them because nobody told me. Okay? That's, that, there's a little bit of the, I'm not to blame for what's happening here. And also, this will be a pivot point in this parable because from now on, the focus is going to be on uh, those who are living, right? The five brothers or uh, us, ultimately, right? They need to hear. So um, send, send a messenger. And Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets, which would be our Old Testament. Uh, that was their Bible at the time. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. So um, it's almost like he wants a little, um, you know, Christmas carol, George Marley coming back from the dead, giving him, uh, you know, sort of taking them through those three dreams. Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. Uh, Jesus said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
Okay, so obviously he's planning on rising from the dead at this point. So he says, look, they're not, they're not going to believe what I've given them. Uh, they're not going to believe anything else. So where do we go with this? Um, well, there are a number of things that we can see here, a number of things that perhaps deserve a little bit of comment. Um, Again, it's not a great place to study about heaven and hell because it's a parable. But I would just point out that there is, uh, in so much of Jesus' teaching, there is a comment about money and about the poor. Uh, Now, as I have said in the past, as I will say again in the future, uh, there's nothing wrong with having money. God blesses some people in the Bible, David, Uh, Abraham, Job, others. He blesses them with money. So there's nothing wrong about having money. But, uh, as it turns out, very few people can handle money. Uh, It tends to corrupt them, us. Uh, When we have money, we tend to think that we are uh, entitled. We are better than other people. We're we're a little bit more self-made. We're independent. I can do this. Right? That's an attitude that just sort of comes with the money. And so it's very difficult for people with money to keep the kind of humility before God and the openness with other people uh, that, that we're called on to have. Additionally, it's worth noting that um, Jesus, again, is, is highlighting the needs of the poor. So there's Lazarus, and, and he's just saying, look... This is a guy, I put him right outside your front door and you stepped over him over and over and over again. You didn't look at this guy. You saw him, but you didn't see him. And that's not what we're called to, right? So there are, there are some things that we could talk about um, out of this parable. But I want to be sure that you get the big point, the main point. So this parable comes right after this parable of the shrewd manager, and the parable of the shrewd manager was calling on us, right, to to leverage what we have today in light of the fact that we're going to live forever. And I think that this is part of what what Jesus is, is saying to us here, right? How are you living? How are you treating other people, right? Who are you ultimately? What ultimately defines you? Is it your money? Is it your, your power, or is it your graciousness? Is it your heart for the poor? Is it your heart for God? Right? What are you doing? Because we're going to live forever, and eternity changes everything. And one of the things that I think is, um, is incumbent upon us in light of eternity is to think about the people that don't know Christ. So we, we do, uh, as a church, I think we do uh, increasingly well on uh, serving. Good job, good job, right? I mean, I, I, I'm thrilled when I get to see all the different programs that are out there. There's a new program out there uh, today that you can learn about, Stepping Stones, uh, that's, that's at the Lake Forest campus. But there's, there's new programs trying to help women that are being trafficked. There's a lot of programs uh, that are going on. So there's a lot of different ways that we're trying to serve people. But we are called to share the good news of of Christ with other people. We are expected to to tell people about God's love and eternal life and forgiveness of sins 
and the good news of, of the grace that comes our way when we reach out to Christ. One of the opportunities that you have to make this a really easy uh, next step is to invite someone to Alpha, which is going to be happening this week, Tuesday's night, Tuesday night at the Lake Forest Campus 6 to 8, Wednesday night at the Crossroads Campus 6 to 8, and this is a 10-week program. It's an international program, and I want to run a, a brief tape that, that demonstrates what Alpha looks like. Let's run that tape. I think Alpha works primarily because I think the hand of God is on it. People do still have real questions about what it means to be human. Is there more to life than this? The role of spirituality in the modern world. And Alpha's provided a safe space for people to step into a room without fear of judgment or condemnation and actually get those things out there and talk about them. I think a lot of what makes Alpha work is there's an accepting environment around a table with food on it and they hear some fantastic teaching and then they actually get to talk about it and even differ with it in a safe environment. It creates the right kind of social dynamic where people open up. Alpha, so many churches are doing Alpha. Why not Hillsong do Alpha? And we started it and it's just taking off in all kinds of environments. Alpha is gonna change the city of Long Beach. <laughs> It's, I, it's infectious, and I want that for the people that I know that are lost within our city. I think one of the incredible things about Alpha is that I have never talked to a church leader who has tried it and that it hasn't, you know, quote-unquote, worked. It's just this humble conversation that guides kids who are, who are doubters, who are skeptics, and it slowly, humbly guides them through this conversation. My students love it because the whole premise of, of the Alpha film series is creating discussion and dialogue. Parishioners who are lifelong parishioners are coming alive in their faith. It's beginning to really transform my, my church from the ground up. I, I haven't seen anything that bears the fruit in trying to bring somebody into that kind of intimate relationship with God in the way that I've seen Alpha work. Like I understood what church was about, a community we see what is he doing in my life. I seek that question, and Alpha answered the question for me. Those weeks were just so instrumental in just giving me a foundation in what it is to walk with Christ. So that's the beauty of it. It matches the way people, I think, naturally come to faith. We now have had over 900 people in our church go through Alpha in the past couple of years. And it has radically altered the DNA of our church. Like what happens is over the course of your life, you do things with people, you discuss stuff just in the life that you exist in. And uh, I think Alpha kind of matches that. It's just a dope way to think about the big questions of life. What if there was a sort of plug and play program that 20 million people have already been through and have been influenced by worldwide? And what if I told you that it's the most predictably redemptive tool I've ever seen in 40 years of ministry. Would you pilot one alpha group in your church? Just try it one time. So um, here's the bottom line. I want to encourage you not to eat the marshmallow, right? I want to suggest that you live today in light of the fact that you're going to live forever. And that you think differently about who you are and what matters and how you spend your time and your resources and how you invest our life that is brief. This life is brief. Eternity is not. The opportunity to make a difference is today. So 
invite someone to Alpha, come along with them. Just invite, come once. Just, it's, it's a 10-week program. Just invite people to come to the first one. It's a great dinner. Uh, starts this Tuesday here, this Wednesday at the Crossroads campus. Invite people to come to Alpha once. But just be thinking, right, what does it look like to live today in light of the fact that I'm going to live forever? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for these teachings that have, in your providence, been recorded for us that we can think about and wrestle with. They are a bit disruptive and uh, tend to rattle our cage perhaps more than we would like. But we want to absorb this truth. We want to live in light of uh, the wise counsel we get from you about what a successful life looks like, especially in light of the fact that we're going to live forever. Give us wisdom, give us courage, give us uh, impulse control, give us uh, boldness to invite others to take a next step. And uh, we pray that you would use even us uh, to continue to expand your kingdom. Here and around the world, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.